0: Good morning, church. Uh, Good to see you. Uh, If you'll indulge me uh, for a moment, I'd like to show you a few um, personal photos from our recent time in Europe. And uh, this is a point um, leading into where we're going to go in God's Word today. Uh, But this uh, is Cheryl, my wife, walking through a beautiful uh, green forest uh, known as the Delville Wood. It sits along the, the village of Longueval in northern France. And as pristine and unspoiled as it appears in this photograph, it has the terrible distinction of being part, uh, a terrible historical distinction of being part of the Somme uh, battlefield uh, during the First World War. This was uh, not just a random visit to a battlefield for us, but has a a special importance to um, our family, Cheryl's family, uh, in particular, because her great-grandfather, Corporal Samuel Samuel Darnell, um, uh, enlisted in the Bedfordshire Regiment, 1st Battalion, and was killed in action in the Delville Wood on July thirty-first, 1916, as part of the Battle of the Somme. It's very likely, as is true for most of the soldiers who fought at that time, that um, their bodies were not recovered. It's likely his remains are still in the woods with fellow soldiers from the United Kingdom, uh, the South Africans who fought uh, in this sector, as well as, of course, German soldiers. More than 100 years later, as you walk through the woods, you can see the effects of the battle, the trenches that were dug, the artillery uh, craters that were created, are still very visible more than 100 years later on the forest landscape. It's hard to imagine now, seeing as it is in this photo, but in 1916, uh, this is what the Delville wood looked like. Now, even for those of us, myself included, who are drawn to the history of war, we read about it, we watch movies, we visit memorials and battle sites. There's no pleasure in this. It's a pastime, it's a hobby, I suppose, a pursuit, but there's no actual pleasure in it. It's an interest that evokes, in fact, deep emotion and somber reflection, especially when you visit the battle sites, when you see the memorials and you read the countless thousands and thousands of names of young soldiers who were killed. To study war is to study all the base instincts of humanity and to see humanity at its worst. Now, I share all of that with you because it's not just an interesting history lesson, but I share all of that as it relates to the Scriptures today. I share, with it, I share it with you because it forms the backdrop for an understanding that you and I, as Christians, are at war. And this war isn't pretty in a very real sense, it is a hellish war every minute of every day of our lives. And it's important to note that when we start to talk this way as Christians about warfare, spiritual warfare, and, 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 and being soldiers in this fight, if, if we use that language, which is biblical language that we understand that what we're talking about is a very specific and very personal war because there are too many Christians that are gonna hear this and think that what I'm talking about is a culture war that the church is supposed to be undertaking. And I'm not talking about that at all. And the scriptures don't talk about that. This isn't a culture war that we're engaging against the world around us. This battle is primarily fought in each each one of our individual hearts as Christians, and that's what the text points us to today. The fight is in our own hearts and minds. It's not a culture war. It's a battle for every single one of us to believe and apply and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, as Paul says here, in, in one of the verses we'll read in a moment, he says, it's, it's a battle to set our minds, this is, this is verse 2, to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. That's the battle. It's a battle for the faith. It's, it's a battle to, 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 to fight through and the ability to believe, though everything around you wars on you believing. And so this message in essence, is a mission briefing. We're going out to war. There's a battle that has to be fought. We're the combatants. And we need to be briefed on what that battle is going to be all about as we consider the fight that we're all in as believers. So, let me read Colossians 3, 1 to 11. Follow along in your Bible as I read this, and then we're going to work through the verses. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian and slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, on the screen and in your notes, you'll see this, and this is what we're going after. This is the mission briefing. I engage in the battle for the faith knowing several things. Here's the first one, that there is a clear objective. Every soldier wants to go into battle knowing what the objective is. And where, uh, where, where wars have gone wrong, where battles have gone wrong, it's because the combatants, the soldiers, didn't know what the objective was. And so there's a clear objective to this battle that you and I, as believers, are going into. Verse one, if then, Paul says, if then, he sets up the conditional sentence. He wants us to think about this. If then you have been raised with Christ, Paul's not making any assumptions about whether they're believers or not. He's not making any assumptions about the genuineness of anybody's faith. And nor will I, because it is possible, and we know this. It's possible for people to get baptized, as someone will uh, today at the end of this service. It's, It's possible to call yourself a Christian, to profess Christ as your Savior. It's possible to be a member of this church, to serve, to give, to do all of it. It's possible to tell everyone you're a Christian and not be one. So, Paul makes no assumptions. I make no assumptions possible to profess Christ but not truly know Him. And the evidence of salvation, and and the pattern in Scripture is so clear on this, the evidence of salvation is seen, we're told time and time again in the Word, is in the fruit, in the product, in the evidence that a Christian shows. Namely, that a Christian is going to look and act like one, and more importantly, behind the scenes, have a heart that is aligned with God's and think like a Christian. It starts, we're going to see here, with that very thought of thinking like a Christian. Do you think like a Christian? So Paul says, continuing on, if then you have been raised with Christ, notice what he says, seek the things that are above. One lexicon puts it this way, the things that are above, they say, are heavenly realities and values. So now start to think about your own thought life, the patterns of belief that you have, and ask yourself the question, do I have heavenly realities and values at the forefront of all of my thinking? We must. We must think about heaven because that's where, notice what Paul says, that's where Christ is. He's he's seated at the right hand of God. And so we're going after this as Christians because we've called Jesus Lord, not just Savior. Yes, He is our Savior, but He's also our Lord, which means He has all the authority to lead in our lives, to dictate what the values, what the heavenly realities are. Not possible to have Jesus as your Savior and not have Him as your Lord. That Those two come together. Don't believe the lie that, you know, Jesus saved me. I just haven't made more Lord of my life yet. Then you're not saved. These come as a package. He is he is both, or he is none. And so we're aligning our thoughts with him. All authority is in him. This is, in essence, complete submission to his will and his ways. And just and, and that's why we see verse 2: this is the imperative. This is the command that comes to us. In light of this, if you've been raised with Christ, you're seeking the things that are above. Christ is there, he sees the right hand of God. Here's the imperative. Set your minds on things that are above. So if I'm a true believer and he is the authority, then I want to align myself with those heavenly realities and values. And in fact, this phrase, set your minds, emphasizes the, in, the, the inner attitude that's necessary for me to set my mind on these things. In other words, this has to come from the heart. And Paul, previously in the letter, he's battling these people who are just rule followers, religious rule followers. He's saying it has to come from the heart. It's not outward compliance. We dealt with that in some detail last week. It's not about religious rights and rule keeping. It has to be an inner attitude, a heart desire to follow, to love him. So set your mind on things that are above Verse 2, not, here's the other side of it, not on things that are on the earth. And so, as Murray Harris says in his commentary, we're we're rejecting an earthbound mindset in favor of these heavenly realities and values. We're rejecting an an earthbound mindset and embracing a heaven-bound mindset instead. And so we're talking here about the clear objective for us going to war. What's our clear objective? It is for the Christian to be constantly aligning and realigning our thinking, to be perfectly candid with you, on everything, our thinking on everything. Now, you start to do the inventory just in this moment and ask yourself the question, do heavenly realities and values inform every single thought I have in a week? Everything. This is a battle to believe that God informs every single aspect of a Christian's life. That the heavenly realities and values impact everything in my life. So, let's, let's work on a short list of, of examples and applications. Does that sound okay? Okay, I'll work it out for the four of you, and then everyone else can, <laughs> can listen relationships relationships you know studies show sociological studies show that any single human being can handle about 150 relationships at any one time if you want to add someone new into your life you got to jettison someone out okay that's the basic principle 150 roughly have 150 relationships and they're all different relationships that you have in your life so i think about this i think the most obvious one would be marriage for those that are married now, heavenly realities and heavenly values need to inform your marriage, and if you've come here today, you polished your marriage up, uh, you've agreed not to argue in front of everyone else, you're going you're gonna to make everybody believe from the parking lot until you come in here, until you get back in the car, you're going to let everybody believe that you have a great marriage, but, but both of you know, sitting right here right now as I'm saying this, both of you, your temperature is going up right now, sweat is beating on your head, because you know you don't have a good marriage. And yet you're sitting here under the, under the teaching of God's Word, and you know that the gospel needs to be applied in your marriage. And in very rare cases, it's one person who doesn't want that, and the other one does. But in most cases, there's some, there's some resistance on both to really get honest about what's going on here, and to really have heavenly realities and heavenly values. In essence, the gospel of Jesus Christ applied into your marriage relationship. Get serious about it. That's the fight. That's the battleground. Like, I mean, that's exactly where you're going to be fought. That's, that's where it's going to take place, is in your marriage, in the most vital human relationship you could have. That's just one, okay? Marriage, friendship, it informs our friendships. It informs our workplace relationships. The Scriptures have, you know, it matters. If you're a Christian, you're in the workplace, whether you're the boss or the employee, it matters that you live Christianly, that heavenly realities and values are at play in your workplace. Do people at work know you're a Christian or do they hear you're a Christian and look at your life and go, that guy's not a Christian? (laughs) Citizenship. How we we conduct ourselves as, as citizens of this country, of this province, of this city. It matters that you're a Christian. It matters that we look at the Scriptures and and we understand how to relate to governments who are enacting things that we largely disagree with. And I'm going to tell you right now, so many Christians are on that culture war thing and fighting the government over things that the gospel tells us ought not to be that important. It matters. In our neighborhood, same application is at work. People are watching you. Are you Christian to your neighbors? Are heavenly realities and values saturating your property so that your neighbors know that you love Jesus. And shockingly, the relationship to your enemies matters because Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to love our enemies. And we all have someone in our life, okay, may not use the word enemy, but we all have someone in our life that we wish was not in our life. An uncomfortable laughter rippled through the room. <laughs> it matters. It matters in our parenting. It matters in how we spend our money. Every last, we don't use pennies, nickel, every last nickel, it matters. The values of God's kingdom need to be in our in our earning and in our investing and in our spending and in our giving. The heavenly realities and values need to be applied to our ethics. It needs to be applied in origins and science, which is such a hot button topic today. The origins of humanity and how we all fit into this and how it all came about. And do you know that God created, think about this for a second, God created faith and God created reason and and those two things are not in conflict with one another. In fact, far beyond even just being compatible with one another, I would say faith and reason are both dependent on one another. If you don't have one or the other, you don't have a complete package, and you'll never understand the origin of the universe. It must be faith and reason. And if you want some great reading on that, see Thomas Aquinas. And we put a link in the notes, uh, a nice curated site of a lot of Aquinas's. Uh, writings and understanding. All of this is so, so important. Our understanding of government, our understanding of sexuality and gender. It's not how people feel about these things. It's not what they personally think is right. It's not about speculations and theories and experimentation. The Scriptures have a lot to say about sexuality and gender, and we need to bring to our own lives an understanding of the heavenly realities and values on these important topics. The wisdom of God is contained in this book, and it presents to us the clear objective for why we are fighting, why we're in this battle for the faith. Secondly, this battle is a just cause. The idea of a just cause for being at war or what is simply known as a just war, it's something that's been debated for centuries. The the questions that are raised, is it ever right? Is there ever a right and wrong time to go to war? Is war ever justified? Uh, Some wars are indeed fought over matters of, of justice, of vindicating the oppressed. More often, wars are fought over ideological differences. They're fought over resources like water or oil, or they're based in nationalism. Many wars are fought simply because a megalomaniac seizes power and thrusts war upon his own people and the world. But speaking of Thomas Aquinas, because he thought this through, he was a philosopher theologian of the 13th century, and he sought to define those instances uh, when we could rightly go to war in what is called the just war theory. And he says this, among other things, um, it's lengthy, but he says this, that a nation may go to war, justly go to war, when the combatants have morally right intentions, not vengeance or profit. Now, you think about that. When the combatants have morally right intentions and not vengeance or profit, I would say that if everybody followed that rule, we'd have very few wars. Because most wars, again, are fought for vengeance or profit. Now, Thanks for indulging me. I know some of you aren't into philosophy and history, uh, but uh, I'm your pastor, so you're stuck with me and these moments when we get into this. But this is important. This, this history philosophy lesson is so important here because as Christians, we are engaged in a just war. We're engaged in a just war. We have cause to be at War And many of you might be thinking that this is all very obvious, that Todd, obviously, maybe you're, you've been a Christian for a while, so you know the spiritual warfare passages. You understand that we're involved in a spiritual war. You're thinking right now of like Ephesians chapter six and, and the, uh, the, the armor of God, that every soldier of Christ is to be outfitted with the armor of God, or Hebrews 12 4:12, uh, where it speaks of the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God being the sword of the spirit. It, it, it's, it's a weapon in our hands. Or you might think of 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 3 to 10, which, which talk about the weapons of our warfare, not being carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's a militaristic passage. And so some of you are thinking, yes, I understand this is a spiritual war. It's, it's obvious that we're at war. But I pause and think about how most Christians live their life, and I don't think it's obvious at all. I think most people don't think at all about the fact that as soon as they leave this place today, even as you sit in this place today, a spiritual warfare is is, is happening, is waging all around us. You see, most Christians, I believe, at least it appears to me, most Christians are living their lives as if it's peacetime. As if there is no conflict and there is no war. Existing in this willful state of ignorance about sin in the world and especially about sin in your own hearts. It's a complacency that has set into so many Christians, so many who profess faith in Christ, so many who are unwilling to actually go to war against their own flesh and against the evil one, to rid that out. Now, here's the basis for what I'm saying. Paul writes in verse 3, for you have died. He's talking to Christians in the church in Colossae, and he says, you have died. And, and it's so hard for us to get our heads around the fact that we are dead to this world and yet still at war with our own flesh. I mean, we hit it last week, we hit it the week before, Paul's hitting it again right here. When we acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives, when we confess our sin and we confess our need of Him, We are, as Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus in John John chapter 3, we are born again. If we get to that place, we are born again, which the assumption is, if you need to be born again, it means that previously you were dead. You were born, and you died, and now you need to be born again to new life through Christ. Paul said, Pretty much exactly the same thing in chapter 2, verse 12. We looked at it there. He says, you were buried with him, which again, if you're going to be buried with Jesus, it means you you died with him. And he notes, in fact, in that same passage in chapter 2, he notes that baptism, baptism by immersion, the way we practice it here, pictures the death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. And for a fuller understanding of that, just jot down Romans chapter 6. So this, this is our just cause. This This is the reason why we're going to war. I convince myself that I am dead in my sin, need to be crucified with Christ so that I am dead to my sin. My just cause is to convince myself that I am dead in my sin and need to be crucified with Christ so that I am dead to my sin. And then that I am raised to new life in Jesus with the blessed result that, look at verse 3, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden. It's like a little military term put into here. And it means to hold a shield over, hold a shield over, to keep safe, to cause to be protected. And that's what the Lord does with our salvation. And so we're at war. It's a just war. It's a just spiritual war to save and protect myself from the ongoing effects of sin. Everybody with me so far you 're all good. do you want me to keep going? Yeah. I was going to anyway, but um, <laughs> here 's a third one. Now when nations go to war, before I let me set this up before nations go to war, the outcome is rarely assured they don 't know if they 're going to win or not, and very often the victors in any conflict are determined by by key battles and and circumstances in a lot of cases that are unforeseen. But in the case of this spiritual war, it is a guaranteed win. We go to war knowing the outcome of this war. Now, notice verse 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, He's made visible to us, then you also will appear or be made visible with Him in glory. Now, you you see the confidence with which Paul is writing. There's no equivocation in that statement whatsoever. This is a predictive prophecy pointing to what is called the parousia. Now, the parousia also means appearing. It's a different word used here in Colossians, but it refers to the exact same event. Parousia is a Greek word that refers to appearing, the second coming of Christ. That We don't use the word parousia in, in English, but we use the Latin word. The Latin equivalent of the word parousia is the, is the word adventus. We just lop off the last two letters and use the word advent. And the first advent of Christ was the nativity, and the second advent of Christ will be His second coming. And so, what Paul is doing here is he's looking forward to this end-of-the-age event, intending to give us hope in the midst of this fight that we're in. The end of the age event could be described in so many different ways, and Jesus described it this way in Matthew 25, which is an apocalyptic passage. Jesus said this, Matthew 25, 31 to 33, He says, when the Son of Man comes, speaking of Himself, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, that's the parousia, the appearing of Christ, the second coming, the second advent, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the picture. That's, that's what we're heading toward. That's the appearing and the, and the mind-blowing reality of what we're reading here, and we saw this when we studied the book of Revelation over the last couple of years, is that all of this is already accomplished. All of this is already completed. We don't read the apocalyptic passages and look at it and think of it as just, these are just storyboards of what God is planning to do. But these are all seen in, the, in these passages as events already accomplished outside of time. It's hard for us to understand because we're, we're trotting along on, on the timeline here, and so we only think in terms of time. We think in a linear fashion. We're creating history. With every moment, we push a little bit of time behind us into the past, and it becomes history, and we look forward, and we anticipate, and we, we, we ponder the future that hasn't happened yet. It's further along on the timeline. But the idea of past and future, the, the, the idea of, of history and what is to come, these are merely constructs, human constructs, that have no place off of the timeline. Because in eternity, everything's already completed. And since it's completed, and this is is why I'm telling you all this, since it's already completed, it's a guaranteed win. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And he meant it. He wasn't wasn't saying, I hope it's finished. I think it's finished. It'll eventually be finished. It is is finished paid in full mission accomplished sin and death defeated it's not in any way an aspirational statement it's not wishful thinking it's not aiming for a win that may or may not come you say like i, I get that Todd, but i'm i'm still battling it out with sin like i'm i don't feel the victory I'm still struggling so much. And I understand that because we're still down on the timeline. Still battling it out every single day. Some of us intensely. But I want to assure you, and and, and the comfort and encouragement that comes from this is, is simply this. If Christ is your life, if he is your life, because remember you died. If Christ is your life, then the outcome is assured. The win is guaranteed. And you should be encouraged and confident in your walk with Him as a result of that. And notice also in this battle, and this is important because we can't be left with just the the idea that it's all finished without a clear plan of attack, and that's what He provides us next. We're not left to battle our sin without a plan, nor should we simply give in and accept our sinful state. Well, if it's all accomplished and, and, the, and, the, and the fix is in and the, the battle won and it's all, all done, then why would I bother fighting my sin? I, I could just um, live with it and accept God's grace and apply His grace to my life, and then at the end of the age, I'm with Him. And we we just cave in to the temptations and and the sinfulness. Of course, Romans 6, the first part, deals with that. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We can't be abusers of the grace of God. And so so we need to fight. The the Holy Spirit commands us, in fact, to fight sin, saying through Paul here, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Those earthbound values that you have, put those to death. The Puritan John Owen said it this way. I don't have it up on the screen for you, but John Owen said this, be killing sin, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So Paul says, put to death, put to death what is earthly in you. And then we get a nice list of examples. How many are excited when the sin examples come up? How many people are like, I wonder if my sin's on the list? Anybody? No one's raising their hands. I get it. (laughs) Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire are all various ways of saying sexual sin. It's almost like Paul didn't want them to miss the point. The first four things he mentions are all related to sexual sin, and I can hardly think of anything that applies more to our generation. We are obsessed. We are obsessed with it. And immorality is all around us. So the first four deal with that, and then he deals with covetousness. You want things that you don't have. You're jealous of someone else because they have it. You want it. You covet it. And then Paul says, you know, that's not just the sin of covetousness, it's actually the sin of idolatry. What you're saying is God hasn't given you all that you, uh, that, that, that you need, but that you want more, and therefore you're worshiping that God. You want the thing, and you love the thing more than you love God. It's idolatry. You go, some of you right now are going, my sin's not on the list, I made the cut. It's awesome, Right? Because it's mostly just sexual sin and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so you have kind of like three things mentioned there. And some of you think you're off the hook. But, but you're not off the hook, of course, because this is just a sample list. It's just a sample. He's just, he's, he's just writing stuff. He just writes some things and he says, like, this is a sample of what this could be. But this is just like us. Like, we're constantly trying to write ourselves out of the story. Make sure we're not covered by this. This, this has been the whole deal since Adam and Eve. Sin has always been like redefined and we're always looking for ways to not be included. The redefinition of what the Word of God lays out in terms of sin so that our particular transgressions can be excused. this is a common thing today. The world doesn't care. I mean, they don't have the standard of God's Word. They don't care. But there are a lot of people within what we would call evangelical churches, Bible-believing churches, who are trying to redefine the Scriptures. So, that's what that meant then, but that doesn't mean that now, is one example of that. Or those interpretations are wrong. We've always interpreted that wrong. Wrong. Uh, and, and, and that reinterpretation, then, if we can reinterpret the Scriptures that speak to some of the uncomfortable sins in our lives and in our culture, then we give ourselves freedom to do those things. Well, that's very common out there today, but it's not new. It's as old as the serpent saying to Eve, did God really say? I mean, that was it, wasn't it? God gave His Word, it was just a little bit of God's Word. Just, it wasn't much. It was just, you can enjoy the whole garden, just don't eat from this tree. That was God's Word. And, and, then, and then the servant comes along and says to Eve, did God actually say? Challenging the interpretation. That's exactly what's going on, not only in the world around us, not only in the broader church community, we do it in our own hearts and minds oh, did God really say that this is as bad as maybe it's not? I think I can do it. And we give ourselves an excuse. It's the same old nonsense from the evil one, the same battle plan over and over again. And the world we live in today has sought to perfect the technique of lying to us by altering the very Word of God but for the Christian, the line is drawn. Look at verse 7. In these, in these sins that I've mentioned, you two once walked when you were living in them. This is their testimony before Christ. This is what their life was all about. And then he says, but now, verse 8, but now, there's a big change that has taken place, a big alteration of how they once lived. And he says, you must put them all away. And there's a sense that this is a continuous, active action on our part. And then he adds to the list. Those of you who felt so smug that your sin wasn't on the list, he says, well, let's talk about anger. How many of you have anger issues? How many? How many you have this uncontrollable rage that you can feel happening inside of you? Wrath, malice. This is like you're so angry with someone so upset with them, you hate them, and you want terrible things to happen to them. That's malice. You want them hurt, injured. Slander, speaking truth or lies about someone to tear them down. You want to make yourself feel good by ripping apart another person. That's slander. And then in a very broad category, he talks about obscene talk, meaning so many other things that we could possibly do. Vile language, careless language. Verse 9, he mentions, don't lie to one another, just dishonest, from little white lies to, 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 to big fat lies, deceiving people, leaving information out. So having built that list, it's still just a sampler, there's still more. And he says this, we're going to put these all away, seeing that you as a Christian have put off, put off. And he's going to use language related to the clothing. And you think about it, you think about the Lazarus thing where Jesus raised him from the dead and he came out of the tomb. He's wearing the grave clothes and Jesus said, loose him. And we're coming out of the grave. We've been crucified with Christ. We've, we've put to death the old self. We're removing the grave clothes. We're putting on the clothing of holiness and righteousness. So put off the old self with its practices, verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed, again, continuous process while we remain on the timeline, living our life on earth, being renewed in knowledge. Circle that word in your Bibles, that's key in the book of Colossians. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So, the battle is in our minds. The battle is in our thought life, and every sin is going to begin right there every sin begins with us considering whether we're going to do it or not, and then deciding whether to do it or not. It's a battle. So, this is a battle to erase the effects of sin on the image of God in our lives, which we are the image of God. And Paul has been in this letter, he's been addressing these people. We're going to come back to that word knowledge because he's been addressing these people who are called the Gnostics and who were distorting the gospel in Colossae and other places. The Gnostics claimed Secret knowledge. And in fact, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosko, from which the word Gnostic comes from. You know, they're the knowledge ones. And it's and it's secret knowledge. And Paul's saying it isn't at all about secret knowledge, but it's it's about the things that you can and should easily know. Things that are already revealed. And so when we think about this being a warfare, there's all kinds of different ways to wage war. And this is not the covert, you know, spies and secret messages kind of war. It's not about that kind of intrigue. This is hand-to-hand combat on an open field of battle. That's the war that we're fighting. There's nothing secret about it. It's a daily, even hourly battle to put off the old self and put on the new, and we're going to talk a lot about putting on in next week's message in the next section of chapter 3. It's about the removal of sin and sinful patterns and the addition of righteousness. And, and just as a teaser for next week, because again, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail, you might say, well, how can I do that? How do I, how do I put off and put on? And I'm going to give you the answer. And a lot of you are going to hate the answer. I'm just telling you right now, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. Because those who don't want to get serious about this are going to think that the answer is too simple. But we're not Gnostics. Christians. And the gospel's clear. So here's what I need to say. To the extent that you commit yourself to the reading, learning, growing in, internalizing the Word of God, To the extent that you commit yourself to the church of Jesus Christ, to one another in community, and all that goes with that, to the extent that you commit yourself to these two things, you'll be able to put off and put on. But I'm going to tell you straight up if you are not committed to knowing the Word of God and you are not committed to His people, you will not put off and you will not put on. You can lie to yourself about that, but it's never going to happen. Remember, it's not about secret knowledge. It's not about complicated processes. The Christian life is really quite simple to understand. Then notice this the stakes are high as we talk about all of this very quickly, these last two points. The stakes are high for those not yet won over. I started this message talking about World War One, and I'm not sure any historian would call it a just war, but rather a tragic series of unintended consequences. That's World War I. World War II provided a much clearer rationale for why the allies fought. But our spiritual war could not be more clear, and the stakes are exceedingly high. The the stakes are high for me, the stakes are high for you, and our own personal holiness, our standing before Christ. And beyond that, the stakes are high for any who have not yet been won over, who have not yet embraced Christ. The church exists not exclusively. I remember hearing this once. I don't know who said it, but the church is the one organization that does not exist exclusively for the benefit of its own members. We exist for the benefit of this world. We're here to fulfill a mission that Jesus Christ gave to us. The angel said to Joseph in advance of the nativity, he came and he said to, he said to Joseph, uh, Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that was his mission. That was Jesus' mission, and he fulfilled that mission. And then prior to his ascension, after his death, burial, resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And before he ascended, he said to us, he said to the church through his apostles, he said, now it's your mission. It was my mission, I showed you how to do it, now go and do it, it's your mission. Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. And Paul says here, so that's our mission, that's, the stakes are high, people are going to hell, we need to tell them. And Paul says, verse 6, on account of these, referring to all the sins he had noted in his two previous lists, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Judgment is imminent. Eternal separation is looming for those who do not embrace by faith the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. To have, as Paul said in chapter 1 verse 14, to have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, the redemption that Jesus Christ paid for your sins when He gave His life on the cross, when He provided through us through His death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. The stakes are at high. are so high, and this is why we're at war, that we would believe that many more would believe. And so, as I go to war, as you go to war, look at this. We're not going alone. We're following a proven commander into battle. Paul indicates that all of the ways that we divide people in the world don't apply in the church. It's like he's speaking into the unity of the church or the unity of the army as we go uh, to battle together, and that there was concerns around divisiveness and not being all of one mind as we go into this battle. So, he says in verse 11, presumably this was an issue in Colossae. Here there is not Greek and Jew. We're, We're not dividing people up ethnically. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised. We're not dividing people up in religious terms, religious ritualistic terms. There's no barbarian or Scythian. These ethnic divisions mean nothing in the church. There's no a slave or free. The socioeconomic divisions don't matter in the church. We are one race. We are one people. And we think about all of these issues differently than people in the world. We should not be taking our cues on racial issues from people outside the church and outside the understanding of the gospel. We've put off the divisiveness and contention of this world, and we follow the words of our commander, Christ, who is all and who is in all. He's the only one worth fighting for, the only one worth fighting with in this glorious spiritual war that we find ourselves in i'm following a proven commander into battle jesus christ let me conclude with these thoughts and then i'm going to pray we're going to baptize someone we're going to worship i don't know sure how you feel about the battle but i can tell you with certainty that the enemy is fighting You may have your feet up and and think it's not that important, but Satan is fighting every single day, and his demons are fighting every day, and he set up a world system that's warring against you, and your own flesh is against you. And and they're all warring to, to create unbelief. They want you to not believe what I've preached today. They want you to not believe the Word of God. They want rebellion. They want rejection of God's Word. Satan right now is pillaging and fighting and destroying and occupying and killing and taking prisoners and enslaving. He's doing it right now. And so many have their feet out, complacent and comfortable, ignorant and unengaged, And I'm telling you, Christian, it's time to get up off of our chairs. To gird ourselves up, to take up our weapons, and to go to war against the evil one, against this world. And against our very own flesh. Let me pray. Father, these are um, sober-minded thoughts from your word today a challenge that father goes to the very heart of our life in you our walk with you and and what's at stake in the world god i i pray earnestly that your holy spirit would work in each one and that resolutions would be made throughout this room and for those watching father decisions are being made Christians are are creating a new determination in their hearts to go after these things, to put off the old self and to put on the new self and to be engaged daily, minute by minute in this war, to be like Jesus Christ. And God, I I pray also for those who don't yet know Christ. Father, they're, they're in Satan's crosshairs. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in a powerful way to draw more people to Christ, to find the forgiveness of their sins, to be set free, and to have the promise of eternity with you forever. Father, this is a work that we cannot do. This is a fight that we cannot wage apart from your Holy Spirit in us. So strengthen us, Father, for this, we pray. In Christ's name.